2: Our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon.
1: Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic strategist, a contributor to The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. If you want to learn more about me or my political polling company, or if you have any ideas or suggestions about Deadline DC, the best way to reach me is on Twitter, at Brad Bannon. Our special guests today are New York Times bestselling authors, Amy Parnas from The Hill, uh, and Jonathan Allen of NBC News Digital, who join us today to discuss their compelling new book, Lucky, story of Joe Biden's campaign for president. Uh, Let's start with a clip uh, from Joe Biden's inaugural speech. History, faith, and reason show the way the way of unity. We can see each other, not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting, and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury. No progress, only exhausting outrage. No nation, only a state of chaos. This is our historic moment of crisis and challenge, and unity is the path forward. And we must meet this moment as the United States of America. That was President Joe Biden and his inaugural speech. Our guest today, uh, Jonathan Allen, is the Senior Political Analyst for NBC News Digital. A winner of the Dirksen and Hume uh, awards for for reporting, he was previously the White House bureau chief for Politico and the Washington bureau chief for Bloomberg News. Amy Parnas is a senior correspondent for the Hill newspaper in Washington, where she covers the Biden White House and national politics. She was previously a staff writer for Politico where she covered the Senate, 2008 presidential campaign, and the Obama White House. John and Amy are here today to discuss their new book, Joe Biden, uh, How He Barely Won the Presidency. Okay, let's start out with this. Uh, There's a quote, I believe, in the prologue to your book where you quote the uh, late, great Branch Rickey, who was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, brought Jackie Robinson to the major leagues, and Ricky often said uh, luck is the residue of design. Uh, how much of Joe Biden's uh, victory was luck, and how much of it was design? Uh, Amy? Um, I think
2: that it's it's sort of a mix. I mean, John and I saw quite a few things that uh, where luck did obviously contribute to uh, Joe Biden's victory, but, you know, as, as we say, it is sort of, um, you know, by virtue of, like, I think he did a lot of good things that um, we, that are reflected in the book. Um, and, but, you know, what we do is we focus on several things, um, including, sorry, I'm having technical difficulties, Don, if you want to pick it up. Please.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I would add, uh, Brad, is if you look at this entire campaign, Joe Biden had a message. Uh, And he had a real belief in himself. Um, And his message was something that the public wanted. They wanted a a respite from Donald Trump. Uh, They wanted something different from Trump. They wanted a sort of return to normalcy. And I think Biden really understood that. And he set out that vision and that framework. Uh, And there were a lot of breaks that went his way, both in the primary. um, And we go through these, you know, all the way from, uh, you know, his fourth place finish in Iowa being a little bit obscured. Uh, by the Iowa caucus app's failure, the inability to report results, all the way through when uh, Mike Bloomberg started breathing down his neck, Elizabeth Warren coming in very angry about Mike Bloomberg and deciding to take him out herself, Um, even though that wasn't necessarily going to get her back in the race. uh, That was something that benefited Biden. The Biden people were watching that and thinking, like, thank God for Elizabeth Warren, (laughs) which was probably the first time they thought that, uh, all throughout the campaign. Um, you know, the, the president's handling, President Trump's handling of COVID. You sort of go through all these things. You say, there there were a lot of breaks that went Joe Biden's way. But I think what shouldn't be lost in this, and, and you tease at it and you're open there about is Joe Biden was prepared to take advantage of those breaks. When things came his way, uh, he didn't get in the way of that. Um, and he was also able to find moments to capitalize, to really draw that contrast between his compassion uh, and Trump's absence of compassion, between, uh, you know, their character and their competence. So the idea here isn't that Joe Biden lucked into the presidency. The idea is that uh, there were a lot of breaks that went his way. And, and when you look at the—and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, a little bit later—when you look at the um, the difference in the electoral college, not the numbers of them stacking up, 306 to 232. but just how close the races were in states that could have flipped that to Trump. Uh, You're talking about 42,918 votes difference, and Trump is the president. So, you know, you can call it fate, fortune. You know, we used lucky. Uh, We think, you know, the road rose up to meet Joe Biden's feet. But um, whatever the little magic dust is that makes that difference, Joe Biden had a little sprinkled on him, and frankly— Um, You know, some people say they'd rather be lucky than good. Uh, I think most people would rather be lucky and good.
1: Yeah, you know, I remember uh, right after Super Tuesday, uh, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was a very ardent Bernie Sanders supporter. And, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people thought uh, Bernie Sanders would do very well on Super Tuesday, win states like California and Texas. And my friend obviously was very disappointed uh, and he asked me, Brad, what happened? And, you know, his theory was that the pandemic should have helped uh, Bernie Sanders because uh, Sanders was emphasizing health care. And, you know, my answer to my friend was, you know, Bernie Sanders, Americans were looking for a calming presence. Uh, they were distressed about the pandemic. Uh, they were distressed about Donald Trump. And they wanted a calming presence. And that's why I think one of the reasons why Joe Biden did so well on Super Tuesday, uh, because his message was, hey, listen, we need to calm things down. We need to be, bring people together. And I always thought that Bernie, ex- Bernie Sanders was too excitable for a lot of people who were looking for a calming alternative to Donald Trump. But uh, whatever.
2: Um, Yeah, and I think there was a bit of a contrast, too, between Hillary Clinton in 2016 and her lack of a message, and Joe Biden, who had a message the whole time, and a very consistent one.
1: Yeah, and again, I think one of the amazing things which you detail in your book is that Joe Biden won Super Tuesday, barely spending any money, uh, because the campaign was so low in the water uh, before South Carolina, they basically were close to being tapped out. Uh, so I think his Super Tuesday uh, uh, victory was even more remarkable. Uh, let's turn to a different subject. I think one of the most fascinating parts of the book uh, was the relation, uh, the relationship you detail between Barack Obama and Joe Biden, and it really is interesting. Uh, they obviously. Uh, Uh, Joe Biden was, worked very closely with Barack Obama, uh, in the eight years while they were president and vice president. But it seemed to me, my reading of your book was, uh, Barack Obama had two imperatives. Uh, first of all, three, maybe first to, uh, beat Donald Trump, uh, second, to stop Bernie Sanders winning the democratic nomination and third looking for someone, anybody uh, other than Joe Biden, uh, who might be the Democratic nominee. What accounts
2: for that? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because we have a scene in the book where the former president is calling Biden's aides to his office and he's asking, what's your plan for this race? How are you going to win? And I think you know, as it was described to us, he was was a little bit concerned that his former partner might embarrass him and kind of tarnish the Obama brand. And so he was sort of very involved in that. But we have um, anecdote after anecdote in the book about um, Obama's involvement. And we have one particular one in the book where Obama's speaking to a group of black donors and um, he's praising Elizabeth Warren. And he's forgetting yeah. about Joe Biden. It's amazing. Uh, was-
1: I'm going to have to stop you. We're going to go have to go to one of those pesky breaks. Uh, we'll be back uh, in seconds with our t- uh, TV viewers and be back in a couple minutes with our audio
0: listeners. Kamala Harris's position on that, and they may disagree with Joe Biden's position on it. I mean, even today, uh, after that debate. Um, He's somebody who's still parsing de jure versus de facto segregation and the role of the federal government uh, in in stopping de facto segregation. Um, But what people didn't seem to like uh, was the idea that Harris was hitting this guy who might eventually be the nominee. Um, And Biden was able to turn that back on her pretty well, but I think by the time she's in that mix for, for vice president. To be the vice presidential candidate, we go deeply into the story of all the different candidates in that. You want to talk about Stacey Abrams or Gretchen Whitmer um, or Susan Rice or Karen Bass, any of those folks. We kind of go deep into how Joe Biden's making that selection. But ultimately, he does, I think, what the Democratic Party did with him, which is uh, a little bit of a process of elimination. And I think he starts out thinking Kamala Harris is probably the strongest. Uh, and then he goes through the other candidates and he's having a real struggle. He tells Jim Clyburn about this. He's having a struggle between his head and his heart. Um, and obviously Kamala Harris is the head candidate because she's the person who polls best. She's the person with the resume that most neatly aligns with sort of historical expectations of a vice president. I mean, she's uh sitting United States United States Senator, former attorney general of California. Um, and ultimately comes back to her, and, and this is the person who not only is going to do no harm, but also has a little bit of energy, has shown through hitting him in the primary debate that she might be able to hit Trump pretty well. Um, and you know, ultimately, at the, at the same time, um, you know, she's, uh, she's somebody who balances his ticket at a time in the middle of the protest for racial justice uh, where Biden, you know, potentially could have had some vulnerability on his flank in terms of his, uh, you know, writing the crime bill, his treatment of Anita Hill, the school busing issue, um, and so you know, by putting Kamala Harris on the ticket, in addition to her, act- you know, her personal strengths, um, you know, just just as a, a candidate. In addition to that, uh, I think he messages to the African American community that uh, the black voters are going to have a seat at the table in his administration. And I think that was. Uh, important for staving off. What we saw was a fairly effective run by Trump at black voters. He was able to to peel off a lot of a lot more black voters in this election than he was uh, last time. Okay, uh, welcome back uh, to our radio audience.
1: Uh, if you're part of our listening audience and you'd like to watch the show as well as listen to it, uh, you have all sorts of options. You can see us on Periscope TV at uh, periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, you can watch us on Facebook Live at tinyurl.com, BB Facebook Live. And you can watch us on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash. Brad on YouTube. Uh, let me ask you a question about uh, Harris. Uh, Joe Biden was very proud of the role he played in uh, the Obama administration. Uh, what kind of role is Kamala Harris playing in the Biden administration?
2: They have a, they have a very close sort of role. Um, the, the one thing that I've um, seen recently is that he does the, it's called the Biden-Harris administration, and he puts it out there and she's with him in every room. And I think that's not by accident. She, they're trying to dovetail, they're trying to message that the two are joined all the time and, um, and she is always at his side. And that's one thing I noticed in the first six weeks of the campaign. You, you're yet to see them sort of apart. Um, I think that what they're trying to do is make her a big part of their COVID rollout And you've also seen her sort of take part in in that, in making sure that they're speaking to underserved communities and making sure people understand what it's um, that they should be vaccinated.
1: Okay, uh, I think there was a story in the Washington Post recently uh, that Harris is playing a very active role in National Security P- Council, uh, national security policy. Which seems to me, if you're running for president today uh, these days, is a very smart move. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, l- let me let me ask you a question. Does you know? It's, again, it was interesting to me how reluctant. Barack Obama was to support Joe Biden. Uh, do you think uh, Joe Biden sees uh, Harris as his successor? Or I think he would like for detailed?
0: her. I think he would like for her to certainly believe that there is no reason to distance herself from him. Um, and so, part of that is elevating the bench of the Democratic Party. Part of it is um, putting her in, her in that position, but also making her comfortable with the idea. That if Joe Biden doesn't run for re-election, uh, that she in fact will be able to, you know, sort of be the, the blessed successor. I think he was pretty upset that Barack Obama didn't do that for him in 2016. I know he was upset that Barack Obama didn't do that in 2016 because people around him said it, and because he said it in his own book. Um, and so I think you know he wants to make Harris comfortable. It may be that he in fact endorses her in the next presidential election. It may be that he runs for re-election. And if he does run for reelection, he has boxed her in pretty tightly by doing all of the Biden-Harris administration talks. It'll be very difficult for her to try to distance herself in any way or try to get ahead of him the way he got ahead of Barack Obama, for instance, uh, on uh, on marriage equality uh, back in in twenty I guess back in twenty twelve.
1: Yep. Okay. Uh, one last question before we go to our bottom of the hour break. Uh, It's pretty obvious uh, from the reading of your book that uh, the reason Joe Biden became the nominee of the Democratic Party and also uh, eventually won the presidential race against uh, Donald Trump is his tremendous support from black uh, voters. Uh, Tell us about the role that uh, Jim Clyburn, uh, the uh, congressman from South Carolina, played in getting uh, Joe Biden over the top.
2: He played an instrumental role, Brad. Um, I, everyone knows sort of what happened and how, um, how pivotal that endorsement was. But what we do is we take you behind the scenes on what Jim Clyburn wanted exactly from Joe Biden, um, that it wasn't a sure thing all along the um, endorsement. And so we take you behind the scenes um, to their conversations and what they're talking about. And one thing that he really wants is a black Supreme Court justice And so he tells Biden he kind of wants this done and they are Biden is takes the stage at the um, at one of the debates in South Carolina. Jim Clyburn's in the audience and he tells Biden he kind of wants him to bring it up during this debate and he's watching it unfold and he sees that it's not happening. Um, So he rushes. There's a great anecdote in our book where you see him rush. Um, out of the room to go find Joe Biden, his colleagues who are sitting with him think he's going to the bathroom. Uh, He's going with so much urgency, but he's going to find him to say, why haven't you, um, I thought we talked about this, why haven't you mentioned the black Supreme Court justice? Um, And so then you see, um, after the commercial break, Biden does talk about it and you see, you kind of see how that moment came to be. And we kind of take you behind the scenes to see how it, it all played out.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, We're going to go to break now. Our guests in this hour are uh, John Allen uh, from uh, NBC News Digital and Amy Parnas from The Hill. They're here to talk about their compelling new book on the presidential race, Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. Uh, We'll be back with more of John and Amy uh, after this message. Uh, So make sure you're uh, tuned in. We're going to talk. We talked about the primary battle in the first half hour. And in the second half hour, we're going to focus on the big race between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So don't go anywhere. Uh, We've got plenty of uh, more to go with John Allen and Amy Parnas. Lucky how Joe Biden barely won the presidency.
0: Um, Let me just say to the folks who are joining us on the program, you will neither inoculate yourself from uh, nor cure yourself of COVID uh, by injecting disinfectant. And we had a president, we heard that long clip of all the things that he said, uh, who for months lied to the public about how bad the disease was when he knew it, uh, lied about what the death toll was going to be, uh, lied about possible cures, um, and still, to your point, Brad, on election day he gets 17 percent more votes than he did in the last election, 12 more million more votes than he did uh, in the previous election, and Biden, of course, does even better. Maybe it's 23 percent, something like that, of the, of increase, and in, uh, goes from 65 to 81 million. So quick back of the envelope math, about 16 million more votes. I, I think, you know, you were talking about the polls, public polling showed a race tightening a little bit, but a big victory for Biden. The Biden campaign had uh, redone its models and was looking at um, a tighter race than the public polls showed, but they still thought they were in in pretty good shape to win. And then what actually happened on Election Day, and even including the mail-in ballots, was even closer than that. We go into the sort of harrowing moments in this book. Uh, for the for the Biden campaign and for the Trump campaign on Election Day, where it looks like they're dead even. And both sides are kind of thinking, because of their last experience, they're both thinking there's deja vu. So there's optimism among most of the people in Trump's camp. They think they're going to pull it off. And in the Biden camp, there is concern that they're watching the Hillary Clinton situation play out again. And I, you know, all I can say is Trump's ability to uh, deep in his base, to accumulate more Trump voters and get them out to the polls was a lot greater than I think anybody anticipated other than Trump himself, um, matched only by Biden's ability to do it. Um, and of course, the the race in these elec- the, the swing states that make up the electoral college remains so close. And I hear so many Democrats say he won 81 million votes to 74 million, 8 million votes difference, um, 7 million votes difference. Uh, 302 to I'm sorry 306 to 232 in the electoral college and I think to myself you don't win chess matches by kicking field goals. And, <laughs> and the key for the Democrats going forward, and I think that's one of the reasons this is an important like, like, the key for the Democrats going forward, and this is true of the Republicans too, but I think most of your, most of your audience is on the Democratic side, is figuring out how to have a sustainable majority in those swing states that actually believes in the things that the progressive movement believes in. Because I don't think Joe Biden believes a whole lot differently from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Elizabeth Warren or somebody on the left. But I do think that their approach to things is a little bit different. Um, And they're not going to be able to do the things that they want that are progressive unless they're able to build a more sustainable electoral college majority. And just to share a little
2: anecdote, just to show you – then President Trump doesn't really understand that uh, COVID could bring down his presidency, and we have a scene in the book where his former campaign manager Brad Parscale comes to him and says, "This could be this could bring you down," and tr- and Trump doesn't get it. He's basically like, "I don't understand what this has to do with politics," and that sort of um, was a very telling moment, I think, uh, that we reported in this book.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, you know, people, his his aides kept telling him, uh, you know, this could be, you know, this is going to be a real problem. I think at uh, one point, Lindsey Graham says to uh, Donald Trump, you know, this could, you know, this is going to, what's going to keep you from getting reelected if you lose this race. And, you know, I, I guess my question is, and from covering him, maybe you know the answer. Did he just not want to believe that COVID could prevent his victory or is was he just completely incapable of of expressing any kind of empathy or concern uh, about, you know, the fact that, you know, at by that time, a quarter of a million Americans had died?
0: I think for the for the most part, President Trump divorced policy from politics and to the extent that the policy mattered to him, it was the, in the way that he could uh, break it off as uh, as political and you could see this in his answers to things he would sometimes say essentially yes no and both and you know that the message is being sent to different parts of his electoral coalition one of them gets the part of the clip that says yes one gets the part that says no one gets the part that says both and I think in his mind he could sell anything to the to his electorate uh, on a public policy level and so the idea that um, a pandemic that was not something he created. You know, I mean, um, much as much as he can be blamed for mishandling it, uh, for being slow to it, he didn't create it. And I think he looked at it and said, "This is something outside of my control. People aren't going to blame me for this." And what he failed to understand is the opportunity, political opportunity. And I hate to put it in such crass terms, but the political opportunity that arises for any office holder when there's a crisis. He had a moment where he could have rallied people around him, not everybody, but certainly more of the country. And I think we saw that in early polling. People didn't blame him for it. And yet, he wanted to play it down. He wanted to be dishonest with the public about it. He wanted to say that he had defeated it uh, and used that as a political message. And as a result, um, you know, I mean, I don't know anybody who thinks that Donald Trump gained electorally from COVID.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing uh it's complete indifference to the problem. And again, you know, as a Democrat, I I just couldn't believe, you know, especially towards the end, how close the race was. I mean, if there was ever a reason to jettison the incumbent uh with uh ten million Americans unemployed and two and no, a quarter of a million dead, uh it's really amazing. Uh, any of you want to venture, uh, any, uh, guesses on, uh, what Donald Trump is going to do next? Uh, he spoke to the, uh, conservative political action convention a couple of weeks ago and he said, uh, don't be something the effective. don't be surprised if I run and, and win for the third time, uh, do, are we going to have another Donald Trump presidential race?
2: It's funny, John and I spoke to someone today who used to work for him, who's convinced that he is going to be running again. Um, So uh, I I guess we can leave it there. I mean, I I tend to think that he won't, but um, but it is the Trump Party still. um, That much is obvious, and um, I think he's running. John always likes to say he's running until he's not running. I think that's very true in this case.
1: Yeah. uh, Anyway, uh, let's. uh, try this. Uh, How do you think uh, Joe Biden is going to deal? You know, there's uh, now people are calling Joe Manchin, this Democratic senator from uh, West Virginia, the second most powerful person in the United States. Uh, How do you think Joe Biden is going to deal with Joe Manchin? I mean, uh, they've got the uh, pandemic Economic stimulus bill through uh, with a bare majority, and I mean bare majority, uh, but down the line, they're gonna have to build coalitions to get up to 60 votes to stop filibusters. And I imagine that the uh, sort of group of uh, moderate Democrats uh, personified by Joe uh, Manchin is going to play a key role in the future. Uh, How does, uh, how will uh, Joe Biden deal with Manchin?
0: I think we saw a real proxy vote the other day on minimum wage. Um, you know, where Kristen Cinema and uh, and Joe Manchin were out front saying they were going to stop it, but when they had the test vote on it, there were eight Democrats that voted no. And I think a lot of times, um, you know, there are some people willing to be the heat shield for the other people, and I think that was what was going on until uh, Senator Sanders really pushed for a vote on it to see what is the depth of this group uh, that wants to stop the minimum wage or perhaps might not be able to be called on to help with the filibuster. I I don't think you can get to, uh, right now, I don't see the votes uh, in the Senate Democratic Caucus to break the filibuster. Um, Joe Biden's presidency will be, for the short term, defined a lot by what is it that he can get Joe Manchin to do. Um, And one thing that he was able to get Joe Manchin to do was deliver a $1.9 trillion relief bill, which which ain't nothing. but in order for Democrats to be able, to, you know, I was talking about this with the sort of electoral college majorities too. In order for uh, for Democrats to the left of Joe Manchin, which is I think forty nine of them in the United States Senate, in order for them to get all the priorities that want or, or more of them, they're gonna have to win more seats because there are. In order for them to have a majority, they need a Joe Manchin in West Virginia right now. Arguably, that's not necessarily the case with Arizona and and cinema, but. Ultimately, they need more Democrats uh, in order to get the things done that they want to.
1: Which suggests that uh, Joe Biden is going to have uh, a rough year and a half uh, before the midterm elections, uh, because, uh, as honestly, you know, he's planning, a, I think, a two trillion dollar uh, infrastructure package, uh, and uh, where he gets the votes to that, I don't know. Uh, so far what we uh, no, let's uh, we're going to go to break now uh we uh, get back to from- break. We will have more Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, my guests are the authors of Lucky How Bear, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency, uh, Amy Partners from The Hill, and John Allen from NBC News. Uh, we'll be back in a minute to talk more about the uh, Biden presidency and what he brings to the White House. So don't go anywhere. Uh, we still have a whole quarter of an hour left with John and Amy and I'm sure you'll enjoy every bit of it. So uh, hang in there for more of line D.C. with Brad Banner.
0: ...out on whether he's able to find things where he can compromise. One thing he was able to do with this big relief package, though, is help a lot of Democratic constituencies, which will help him keep that coalition together. Okay. Uh, Amy, you're covered... Uh-
1: We're uh, back with our radio listeners now. Uh, This is Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guests are John Allen of NBC News. I guess I should say best-selling authors, uh, John Allen of NBC News and Amy Parnas of the Hill to talk about their new book, which I read over the weekend. I found it very I found it compelling. It was a great read. I urge everybody since most of you were interested in politics. Uh, you should go out and get it. Uh, because it really gives you a lot of inside information that you probably never heard about or saw during the campaign itself. So I recommend it highly. Uh, I even took time out from watching Red Sox Spring Training Baseball to read the book. That's how committed. That's <laughs>
0: But anyway, uh, Brad, what, what do you think about people starting off on second base in extra innings?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was, I enjoyed it immensely, you know, cause I'd like to think I pay pretty close attention, uh, to campaigns, but I learned a lot in the book that I did not realize had happened. And again, uh, I keep going back. I thought one of the most compelling stories, uh, was the story of the, uh, you know, Barack Obama's role during the 2000 campaign, 2000 campaign, uh, and that surprised me and, you know, I'm also struck by uh, one passage in the book where I forget the exact words you use, but you compared uh, Joe Biden uh, to a uh, the Biden campaign to uh, a uh, windblown ship that was lost in the fog uh, that uh, eventually found a way to make itself safely. Uh, to, uh, that sounds to me like it was a pretty good metaphor for the Biden campaign.
2: Yeah, I mean, the entire time, it tells you something when the candidate is telling even his wife, uh, Jill Biden, to hang on. And as we report in the book, I think she was even doubting the strength of his campaign um, and the viability. Um, And so he does tell her, hang on, Jill, hang on to South Carolina. But it just shows you, I mean, they thought at one point of refinancing their home, it got so bad uh, they had 1.5 billion dollars left. They were running out of money. They were get they were failing to get key endorsements. Uh, things were not going their way. They did not have the wind at their back. So uh, we we kind of tell the story of just how bad it was, and then his rise to victory and how he was able to do that so well.
1: Okay, well let, let's look at this situation. Uh, We just passed, the Congress just passed a uh, $2 trillion uh, package to uh, fight the pandemic and to rejuvenate the economy. Uh, Let's say that sometime uh, next year in 2022, uh, the pandemic is still present, uh, but it's certainly not nearly as widespread uh, as it is now. And let's say the economy starts uh, chugging along again, and we pick up a few of the uh, ten, a few million of the uh, ten million dollars uh, we uh, ten million jobs we lost during the crisis. Uh, what you know, it seems to me that if you look at two thousand twenty two midterm elections, the secret of the thing is what Joe Biden's job rating is next year. That seems to be as good as any predictor of the of uh, the hopes of the Democratic Party uh, to pick up seats, the Senate seats. They need to have a working majority in the Senate. Uh, but if you accept my scenario and the pandemic has uh, calmed down a lot and we've picked up a few million of the ten million jobs we lost, uh, what do you think Democratic prospects will be uh, to hang on to the House and? To 2022, which might be an adventure yourself, and pick up a few Democratic seats in the Senate. Uh, so Joe Manchin is not holding uh, Joe Biden hostage every day. Uh, what do you think the prospects for uh, Democrats are under those conditions?
0: I think a, f- a few things, Brad. Um, number one, it would be against the historical norm for Democrats to pick up seats in the first midterm uh, after a president's elected. But that doesn't mean it can't happen. I'm never somebody looks at history and says, oh, well, usually this is what happens, so that's what's going to happen next. Um, but it's, it's worth knowing as a point in context, and there's, there are reasons for that, um, you know, including the sort of pendulum swing of politics. But, you know, also Republicans have lined up for them uh, because of the state legislative wins in this last election. Uh, they have lined up for them a really a, a sort of a better deal in terms of uh, re- rewriting congressional districts, which they may be able to pick up a couple of seats that way, maybe more than a couple. Um, however... What Biden has going for him, I'd say, are two things. Number one, his coalition is pretty unified on the economic pieces. It may not be on $15 minimum wage today, but for, but broadly speaking, the way that his, uh, you know, you were talking about the the factions within his coalition, uh, the way uh, the way one Democrat thinks about the economy and the, the way another Democrat thinks about the economy are, are more unifying than um, some of the cultural issues on which the parties clash, or even within the Democratic Party, there's clashing. So I think it's helpful to him if he's able to focus on economic issues. And second of all, I think what we're seeing in the changing in the parties is uh, the Democrats are doing better with uh, with college-educated voters than they ever have uh, in recent times. And Republicans are doing better with uh, high school-educated or non-college-educated white voters than they have in the past. In midterm elections, the people most likely to vote are college-educated voters, and that it may be that the, we saw in twenty eighteen this huge Democratic wave. It may be that twenty two looks twenty twenty two looks more like that than uh, past midterm elections that were favorable to Republicans, because uh, more college-educated uh, white voters were, were going with Republicans. Okay, uh, Amy, let me ask let me ask you a
1: different question. Uh, I always thought, and uh, I'm not sure I'm right. I guess it's more a hope than anything else, that just having a guy like Joe Biden as president, you know, calm, he's not screaming on Twitter every five minutes. I don't even know if he he does Twitter at all. Um, but you know, one of the you know, besides the pandemic and the economy, one of the problems in this in this country is just the symbolic nature of public discourse uh, in the country. And you know, I always thought even if he couldn't do a whole lot with Congress, just having a calm, reasonable uh, person in the White House like Joe Biden could lower the temperature on race relations and maybe take some of the uh, steam out of uh, uh, white-wing extremist groups, including the ones who invaded the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, Do you think besides everything else that just Joe Biden's calm, reassuring presence can improve the climate in this country?
2: I think it's got to. I mean, it shows a little bit in his approval ratings that um, he's at 60% right now. And I think that's because, mostly because he's, sort of the empathizer in chief. And he is able to calm people and relate to people um, and empathize with people, especially as the country continues to suffer from this pandemic. I mean, I think one of the most poignant moments of his presidency so far was when he was able to sort of commemorate, you know, mourn the loss of uh, the 500,000 people who have died. Um, And I think he, he adds like a genuineness to it because of his own personal loss, and I think that that is something uh, that people really like about him, and that will sort of aim, even if, his, even if things are, don't go his way um, with vaccinations or um, any other policy issue, I feel like people will cut him a break because he is um, able to empathize um, and deal with, with what we're dealing with right now, which is this uh, crisis with the pandemic.
1: Okay. Uh, before we end the show, let me ask you one question. Uh, any surprises so far? You've covered, both of you have covered Joe Biden closely in the campaign. Uh, any surprises uh, from Joe Biden so far in the first six weeks of his presidency, or is it pretty much as you expected?
2: I think the one big surprise is that he's You know, everyone has said, oh, he would be Uncle Joe, and he would be so gaff-prone. And he has been anything but that. He's been very presidential, um, uh, and he hasn't sort of given Republicans an excuse to poke at him in that way. He's been quite the opposite. And I think that um, is something that surprised a lot of people.
0: Uh, John? I think his administration has been more progressive than I would have expected, having watched his Senate career and his presidential campaign.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, I want to thank John and Amy. Uh, I know they must be very busy with their virtual book tour, so I appreciate them greatly uh, coming on the show today. And again, um, I read their book Uh, Lucky How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency Over the Weekend. And, you know, again, I pay a lot of attention to these things, probably too much attention, uh, according to my family. Uh, But I learned things that I never knew. So it's definitely worth your while to uh, get the book and read it. Uh, Again, thank you very much, Amy Parnas from The Hill. Uh, I'm John Allen from NBC Digital News. Uh, be safe and be strong in these double, double times and make sure you tune in to deadline DC every Monday at three o'clock Eastern time, uh, either on radio or periscope.tv. We're always glad to see and hear from you. It's a new day to celebrate and be free. A new day full of action and excitement. Come to Soaring Eagle. Indulge to your heart's content. It's a day for winning, for world-class fun and food. Yes, it's a grand, spectacular day to get away. Only at Soaring Eagle Casino and Resort. It's a new day. Visit SoaringEagleCasino.com.
2: Hey, we get it. You don't want to be hearing a progressive commercial right now. So let us tell you something you do want to hear.